particular episode that caught my attention. And it's about this, uh, it starts off with this American who is hiking through Central Europe. When a downpour, this deluge of rain just comes on him. It's late, he needs shelter, he doesn't have a tent. And so he makes his way and sees a light, and it's actually a medieval castle. And it turns out to be a, uh, um, like a, a sanctuary, a, a place for monks, like a monastery. And he knocks on the door, trying to get out of the rain, and these monks open the door. He tells them uh, how he was caught. They reluctantly let him in. And he, he gets there, he drives off and uh, talks to the monks a little bit. They show him to where he can stay. And um, as he's getting ready to go to bed, he hears uh, this knock. Uh, and he walks out of his room and he goes to another room and he sees this, this other room. It's almost like a cell. And it's got a door and it's got an opening in the door. And he opens it up and sees this man in there. But there's an old staff that is keeping this door closed. And he begins to talk with this man in there, this prisoner. And the prisoner claims that he's being held captive by the insane head of the monks, a man by the name of Brother Jerome. And as soon as the American hears him and hears his story, he goes and he confronts uh, the, the head of the monastery, Brother Jerome. And Brother Jerome says this to him. He says that he is actually the devil that is locked up in that room. The the prisoner is Satan, the father of lies, and he's held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier that he cannot pass. That convinces the American that Jerome must be completely insane. And as soon as he gets his chance, he releases the prisoner who immediately transforms into the hideous demon and vanishes up in a puff of smoke. The stunned American is horrified by what he's done. Jerome responds sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night in whom you have turned loose upon the world. Jerome resp- uh, and the man responds, I didn't believe you. I saw him and I didn't recognize him. Brother Jerome responds, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. How true is that for us today, that many people don't believe in the reality of the devil, but he's real. He's not an idea He's not a philosophy. He's not the inward evil that indwells each one of us, but he is a real spirit being. He was created by God, and he is a fallen angel. We're going to learn about him today. One of our enemies, and we've talked about, and you saw in the video, the Christian, as Christians, we have three enemies. The world, which is this fallen uh, fallen system, the social evil. We have our flesh, the evil that dwells in us. And then we have the powers of darkness. This is Satan and his demons. And in in our world today, we have this tendency to to think of everything uh, through the eyes of psychology, and that has a part of it, mental and emotional things, but we don't recognize the demonic because we fear it, and we misunderstand it greatly. Many, much of the media that we have seen over the years has influenced us negatively, and we've seen some horrific experiences, but the Bible does talk about Satan. And today we're going to learn about, who, he, uh, we're going to learn about him, who is our enemy. We're going to see how he started off, how he got to where he is, how he operates in our world today, and his plan for your life. Because he has a plan. He is out to destroy God's people. And the greatest trick that many of the people of God have believed is that he, he's not there. He doesn't care or he's not involved. And he, he sometimes lulls us to sleep 
with this carbon monoxide of comfort that slowly begins to kill us, keeping us ineffective for what God has for us. He has no problem letting us play in all kinds of entertainment and sports and hobbies and activities and taking our minds off of God. He, or he can attack us just outright, deliberately, like we see what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a demonic thing that occurred. Sometimes he is very overt. Sometimes he is very covert. But whatever the case may be, we're going to see that he is living and active. But we're going to see who he is. We're also going to see what God has done for us to defeat him. And how he has given us the power to wage war and live in victory over him. That's what we're going to look at today. So before we go any further, let's pray God's blessing on our time together. Asking God to be victorious and reign and keep our minds open to hear the truth of his word. Father, we come into your presence by the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Knowing that he is the conqueror, the one true son of God. That he came to destroy the works of the devil and to defeat sin and death. And to give us victory through him. Lord, we come before you now asking you to open your word to our hearts And open our hearts to your word that we might truly hear, understand, and apply the truths therein. Because we know that the battle that we are in is not one of flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers in the heavenly places. So Lord, touch us, use us, and glorify your name within us in our midst today. And let not the enemy have a voice. Let him not take away the word that is being preached. We pray your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now today, we're going to be walking through several different passages of Scripture besides Ezekiel chapter 28, so I'd ask you to keep your fingers limber as we go through this, as we study this very important topic of our enemy, the devil. Now I do want to caution us for a moment to make sure that we do not have an unhealthy focus on the devil. For example, just to give you an idea, the scripture doesn't give, it gives somewhat of a focus, but not a great focus. The greater focus is on Christ. Because the word Satan is used only ten times. The word devil is only used six times. This is Paul, excuse me. Paul uses the word Satan only ten times, the devil only six times. But in contrast, he uses the word Jesus 219 times. And he uses the word Lord in 272 verses, and the name Christ in 389 verses. So we have to make sure that our attention is, greater attention is on Christ and not the devil. Remember, we saw last week we can have an unhealthy preoccupation, and we can go one of two ways. We can deny his existence and his influence in our lives, or we can go the opposite side and see a demon involved in everything that we ever go through and blame the devil. The devil made me do it on everything else. So we have these complete contrasts, and we must make sure that we come to the center, that we don't see him in everything, but we also don't see him in nothing either. So we have to have a very healthy, biblical understanding of this very important topic. Now that being said, 
Erwin Lutzer, many of you might know that name, uh, he's now the retiring pastor of Moody Church, once told the story about being in a lecture in a non-air-conditioned classroom at Free University in Amsterdam in 1964. He was hearing this lecture, and as, it, as you are wont to do when the room is very hot and uh, someone is going on and on, he began to just kind of drift off and his mind drifted off until his professor, a man named G.K. Burkhauer, said this one thing. This is a brilliant man. He is a, a, a pretty amazing theologian. But he said something that caught Lutzer's attention. And he said, I have forgotten so many lectures over the years, but this I have never forgotten. It has stuck with me through over the years. And this is what Burkhauer said. He goes, you cannot have a good theology, understanding of God, until you have an accurate demonology, Satanology. Meaning that we have to understand. That's a way of, that's the subject of understanding. Demonology is the subject of understanding Satan and his demons. Theology is the study of God, and there are many different subjects or uh, tiers underneath that banner. And demonology, Satanology, and it's all under the heading of angelology. So we're going, we have to make sure that we have an accurate understanding of that. Now, like I said, we're going to go through several different things. But if we're going to really understand our enemy, we have to understand his point of origin. Let's start there. Where did he begin? Just like if you're studying any amazing hero or person within history, uh, we can study someone who's done a great thing, whether it's um, uh, uh, just a fantastic leader within history, maybe a Nelson Mandela, or maybe we're talking about uh, a Billy Graham. We're talking about uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Whoever we're talking about, we want to go back to get an understanding of their life. We start where they begin. And we need to understand the devil's beginning. Where did he originate? Where did he come from? That's where we need to look at our text. Now, Ezekiel is writing about this king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And it's, it's a, he's, he's writing about a human ruler who came under God's judgment because his heart had swelled with massive pride. This man apparently even tried to make himself like God. But in verse 12, we're introduced to the power behind the throne. We're introduced to the power behind this rebellious and proudful king. Prideful king. It was Lucifer himself. He was the spiritual power influencing this king because, as we will see, the spiritual power always influences earthly actions because all around us rages a spiritual battle. Now, we need to see what it was like for him in verse 12 through 13. Look at this. You were the signet of perfection. You're perfect. He's saying he was full of wisdom and he's perfect in beauty. Satan is not this this horned red being with goat's legs and a pitchfork. That's not how he operates. This picture of him with a goatee and this black hair and these ears that come out in horns. This is a character from, from literature. As Dante or Goethe or Faust or Milton, these individuals have created these characters and pictures in our mind. But that is not the picture that the, God, the Bible gives. The Bible gives this picture that he is gorgeous, that he is beautiful, that he is the signet of perfection, perfect in beauty. In verse 13, we read that he was in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and all your engravings. On the day that you were created, you were prepared. He is 
perfect, gorgeous. Now, he's, he's, he didn't have to buy diamonds. He, he's got diamonds. I mean, he's, it's on him. He's got all these precious stones. Now, it's interesting that nine of these 12 stones were actually on the breastplate of the high priest. And some scholars believe that he served as a priestly function before God. He's serving in this really high capacity um, in the presence of Almighty God. I like how Tony Evans puts it. He says, he didn't have to buy diamonds. He was a diamond. He was covered with every kind of precious stone. Lucifer was God's master creation. He was glorious and perfect in every detail. And he could sing. The Hebrew word for socket, settings in the ESV, in verse 13, could be translated pipes. Lucifer didn't just play the organ. He was the organ. When he opened his mouth to sing, he sounded like a million-dollar organ. And why not? After all, he, he was created to lead all of the other angels in the praise of God. So Lucifer was blameless, flawless, a masterpiece. The first thing we need to understand is this, that the devil was created by God. You can write that down in your notes if you have them. He was created by God. He didn't just come to existence on his own. He is not a human become bad. He was created as a spirit being. Matter of fact, he is an angel is how he had this great position in the sight of God. Matter of fact, it says that he was an anointed guardian cherub. Now, these were angels in the very presence of Almighty God. These are the ones that are praising him. Uh, and, and we see that the images of cherubim are engraved. On, I mean, God valued the cherubim. They are engraved uh, to be engraved on the tabernacle. They were on the Ark of the Covenant. They were to be on the walls of the temple. Um, they were actually very large ones would cover over the, the, uh, in the Holy of Holies. There would be these very large cherubim. These were, these were God's closest and highest. This was his honor guard the highest of the high angels, who continually proclaim God's glory and greatness. Now, how long did he do this? We're not told. It could have been for a short time or thousands of years. Some believe that everything that that could have been created was created between Genesis 1 and 1 through 3, and it was in that time that he fell. We're not told. We do know that he was God's worship leader, and in Genesis 3, he shows up. So he had been cast out of heaven then. And actually, some believe that God's relationship with Adam and Eve brought him to jealousy, that he wanted that closeness. Now, notice verse 15 and following. He says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And look, skip to verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. He was found by God to be unrighteous. Now, by the sake of his trade, in essence, he's leading the angels in worship of God, and he decides, because of his own beauty, his own power, he, in essence, just, uh, I mean, he fell in love with himself. He loved his selfie stick. He was in love with himself, and he wanted praise for himself. He didn't want praise to go to God. So in essence, he's trying to keep it for himself. But God will not share his glory with another. Worship is serious, serious business. It's not just going through the motion and singing. It's not just moving your mouth. I don't think we understand this. Satan kept worship for himself, and the angels saw that he was cast out of heaven because of it. But Satan, 
Uh, Satan wants worship for himself. Look at, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 for a moment. It's on page 578. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. If you don't want to turn, just listen in. This is another veiled reference to the devil. Some believe it has a double application. Um, some theologians don't believe that. I believe that it does. I'm um, one of few that, uh, one of several, I believe, that, that holds that uh, interpretation. The scripture says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. He utters these five I will statements. Basically, he wants to be God himself. He wants God's glory for himself. He wants to be worshipped. And so he believes that. Then he begins to badmouth God. And then he... He convinces several angels to rebel with him. And then he is convicted of rebellion in the sight of God. That's the next point you can write down. He is convicted of rebellion in the sight of God. He sinned. He kept back some praise for himself rather than worship God. This is why worship is so serious to God. It is the essence of who we are, the purest part of us, the very heart and soul, the purest of the pure. Now, we all in this room, every single one of us worship something. Dennis worships something. Kurt worships something. David worships something. Before we came to know who Jesus is, every single one of us worships something. It is either an ideal. It is either a thing. It is either a person. It is either ourselves. We all worship something. But God has created us. He's created you to worship Almighty God. Now, the angels, they saw him cast out of heaven, and they understood how serious worship was. And we get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 19, after God shows John, who is the author of this book, all these glories of heaven and what's going to come at the end of time, John is overwhelmed, and he falls down to worship this angel. And the angel freaks out in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. You could turn there if you want to. It'd be good for you to see it. Revelation chapter 19, and we'll flip to Revelation 22. Like I mentioned, we're going to be all over the place today. We're not just focusing on one text as we normally do. But in Revelation 19.10, John says this. He fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that! That's how serious this is! Don't do it! I mean, I can imagine the angel just running and saying, Don't! Please, don't! You have no idea what you're about to do! That's why he stops and he says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then again, you'd think that John learned his lesson. And in in Revelation chapter 22, verse 8 through 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Your worship is to be for God and God alone. Do you worship? Do you come prepared to worship? Let me ask you that question. When you come into the assembly of God's people, have you prepared yourself to worship God? 
Have you asked God? Have you focused on him? Are you prepared? Do you just skip it? It doesn't mean that much. It matters a great deal in the sight of God. It is of monumental importance. That's why in the Old Testament you see even choirs being appointed to lead the people in the worship of God. Do you worship? Are you prepared to worship when you walk in the door? Have you come in and you sat down? It doesn't mean you can't greet people, but it means that you sit down and you can focus and consecrate your heart. Or you've done it right before you come here. Are you constantly just walking in and it doesn't mean that big a deal? God forgive us. Worship is serious. So serious in the sight of God. So serious that Satan took some, just a little maybe, for himself, but God cast him out. He is convicted of rebellion, convincing one-third of the angels in heaven to rebel with him according to Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 7. And looking at the other two passages, Isaiah, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And then he is cast out of heaven. Jesus' own testimony. Jesus himself says, And I saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. He is cast out instantaneously. He is cast out of heaven to earth where he roams back and forth throughout the earth, warring against God and his people, as Job 1.7 says. So to put this all together succinctly, to summarize, we can see that Satan is a created being. He was created perfect. He held a high position in God's court, perhaps the highest position possible. He's the first creature to sin against God by being filled with pride and seeking worship for himself. Some people say, well, who tempted him? Can't Satan be forgiven? The difference between Satan and us is that no one tempted him. We don't understand all of the the mysteries of what happened there, but we know that He did it of his own will, his own desire. And he sinned against God and was cast out of heaven because of it. Now we've seen his point of origin. Now let's take a look at his personality. His personality. In Scripture, we learn about his personality through the various designations that the Bible gives of him, by which he is named. The various designations. You can say titles or names. The devil is just one of his names or titles. And it's mentioned seven of the 39 Old Testament books. Genesis 1, Chronicles, Job, he's mentioned 12 times. He's mentioned in the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Now, every New Testament writer mentions him, although he's not present in every New Testament book. Instead, he appears in 19 of the 27 New Testament books and is mentioned 29 times in the four Gospels with 25 of those instances coming directly from the lips of Jesus. Now, the name Satan first appears in what many scholars believe to be the very first book written of the Bible, which is not Genesis. People believe that to be Job. Job to be the first one written. Uh, Remember, the Bible is not arranged chronologically. It's, It's organized by genre. Genre. So, that he has, this, he has these different titles and names. So he has the name Satan. It's a Hebrew word that means adversary. He fights against us. He is your enemy. He is our enemy. He's called the devil, but only in the New Testament, which comes from the Greek word diablos, diablas, and means slanderer because he seeks to slander God and his people. It's the second most common name for our enemy. It's found 36 times in the New Testament. He's also called, and I'm going to go through several names. He's called the tempter, the father of lies, star of the morning, ruler of demons, the serpent, Beelzebub, Belial, 
the ruler of this world, the God of this world, the prince and power of the air, the evil one. He's also known as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, and the accuser of the brothers. We can learn a lot by all of those different designations that he is out to fight against you. He doesn't play fair. He uses lies as a tactic. He's out to destroy you and your family. And he wants to steal your conviction. He wants to tear you away from your pure and undevoted uh, devotion to Christ. He wants to destroy your life. Along with these designations or titles that he has, there are numerous descriptions that the Bible gives of him. He is described as a roaring lion. Roaring lion that is looking for prey. He is a a liar and a father of lies. He's also described as a thief. Someone who breaks in and steals. The thief who comes to rob, to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's also one who uses fiery arrows against us from afar. And he's also described, and this is one of the most disturbing ones, an angel of light. He looks religious. He comes to us in churches, Sunday schools, sees on TV, crusades, tries to mimic and counterfeit the wonders and miracles of Almighty God. We see some of those, uh, many often in our time, and we see many people going after them. But they they are wolves among the sheep. We see these descriptions that he, the Bible gives of us, gives to us about him. Thirdly, we also can learn about him from the disputes that he has had. His interactions, his interchanges, we can learn about him, how he tempted David in 1 Chronicles 21.1, incite him to sin to take a census. We see how he debates with the archangel Michael about Moses' body in Jude 1.9. But perhaps one of the greatest looks into him in the Old Testament comes from the book of Job. Job. He goes after Job. And as we've talked about before, what does he go after to get to Job? Does he go after Job directly? What's the first thing that he goes after? His family. He attacks Job's children. Parents, do you think that the devil is going to attack your kids? If he can't get to you, he's going to get to your children. He's going to try to come after them. He's going to lure them away. And we see it all the time. And we have the world coming at us in a way that we have not seen before with, with smartphones, with multimedia. We have it all at our fingertips. And he's going to come after your kids through them, through friends, through many different things. We have to pray for God to consecrate and protect them. Because Satan is coming after your children. So he doesn't just go after your children, though. Then he goes after your money, your career, your job. He's going to use that as a means to entice you. And Satan will do that by even making Christianity look like a means of you getting money. Now, there is the the truth in the Scripture that if we obey God, that he will bless us. And sometimes that happens monetarily. But that is not always a guarantee. I mean, it is a guarantee that he will take care of us and he will bless us. But that doesn't always mean in financial ways. We can't look at God as a genie. So we, we need to understand that. But the, probably the greatest outside of the book of Job, I mean, after that, excuse me, he attacked not only his, mon- his family and then his money, he goes after his health. He'll go after your health. He'll attack you with different ways in order to get you to, to question God, make God, make you doubt God. God, why did you give me this? Why did you have this? Sometimes it's the devil at the root of it. 
But the greatest way that we can learn and see how he operates is through his interaction with Jesus. I mean, think about it. What does he do to get to Jesus? He uses the word of God. He quotes the very word of God to the author to lure him away, to question, to make him, to, to make him sabotage God's work and plan for his life. And he will even do that to us. That's why how many cults and sects use the word of God in incorrect and heretical ways. He will also, one of, the, one of the other ones that really hit me is his interaction with the high priest Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. What happens is, is that there's a picture of Zechariah who is representing the city of Jerusalem. He is the high priest, the representative of God, um, the representative of the people before God. And he is standing there in these filthy garments. And the word in English doesn't catch it very well, but basically he's got excrement all over his garments. It's, it's, he's, he's just clothed in it. And Satan is by him accusing him, accusing him and going after him, saying all these vile things to him. But God looks at the charges as inadmissible and then has him changed and made pure. Now, what's the point of that passage is that Satan will use your past and the evil things that you have done against you. He's going to use your past, the sins of your past, against you. He's going to do everything in his power to bring you down, to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. He's going to bring back an old relationship, an old story, some type of thing that you committed in your background, a sin that you have done, and he's going to use that to cripple you from becoming the person that God wants you to be. God wants you to live free and to, to walk with him, not to be chained by your past, past not to be anchored to it, because he has come to set the captives free. And the scripture has said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will try to accuse you, but we quote the word of God to him. Now, next I'd like to look at the devil's plans. Plans. We looked at his point of origin. We have seen then his personality. Now we're going to look at his plans. And that can be found in several passages, but we're looking at John 10.10. 10. I'll just allow me to read it. It's a short verse. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is a very important verse in my life because it was the last verse my, quoted, my father quoted before he died. He quoted this on his deathbed. Recognized that the enemy was at the root of so many things. He knew that his suffering and death didn't come from God but from the devil. The devil has come to deceive you. He's a fraud, a huckster, a charlatan. He deceives. That's the first thing that he does. He deceives. He will deceive you. How does he deceive? Several ways. He looks and sounds religious and moral by masquerading as an angel of light. And this angel attacks through false philosophies, false religions, false ministers, false doctrine, false disciples, false morals, and a false, and false gospel and a false Jesus. Satan promises you the best, but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death, as Thomas Brooks said. It's a little bit like this. This is how deception works and how the devil works. You ever seen one of those pre-approved credit card offers in the mail? You ever got one of those? I mean, hallelujah, I got a credit card offer. $25,000 I've been approved for. You have a $25,000. You have been pre-approved. And then what happens, though, and this is what the credit card company doesn't tell you. They'll say, we'll give you six months Zero interest. You can't even move your balance over. 
What it doesn't tell you is after six months, they're going to charge you 26% interest. So you use, let's say that you use that. Oh, I got this pre-credit. I'm going to use that whole $25,000. And now you're paying 25% interest. You're going to be trapped for a lifetime. That's what how many young people, they get that credit card, they go off to college, and they go, woohoo! I got freedom. I got power. I got God, the ATM genie. He's going to bless me. Without realizing it's a deception, it's just pulling you in piece by piece. See, that's what the devil does. He promises you something. He promises you pleasure, but he's going to deliver pain. He promises that you can have all this, not realizing that once you get it, you are trapped. That's what he loves to do. He loves to deceive. He also loves to divide. To divide, especially dividing God's people. That's what I loved, actually, seeing the response in Charleston this past weekend, seeing the response of the church there was one of the most amazing acts of forgiveness. Where there was hate, there was this unbelievable and amazing love. And that's because Jesus is in that people. That's because of God doing something there. See, Satan wants to divide. He wants to divide us racially, ethnically, culturally, language-wise, background, socioeconomically, educationally, any which way he can, by your preference, music style, dress, you pick it. He will use that to try to divide his church. That's what he loves to do because why? As Jesus said in John 17, how is it that the world may know? It's through us being one. That there is no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. That we are one in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that we are one in Christ Jesus. That we have all different races, all different tongues, all coming together to the praise of the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Now, we might have different styles, and we need to learn from one another. Each culture, not one culture is better than another. Actually, I'm in a white culture. It's pretty boring. White people don't clap. Yeah, clap. Our African brothers, you've got to lead us more. That's right. I am so grateful for my brothers and sisters that God has brought here from Africa. I praise God for you. I see you help bring in revival to a lot of the church in America. That's what I see. And I see God using that, and I see Satan trying to get a division too. See, where God is at work, Satan's not far behind. So we have to learn to work through those things because we have a oneness in Christ that brings us together because he wants to divide us. He wants to divide us. And lastly, this is what he wants to do. This is the heart of all. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life. He will look for a window to enter in. He wants you to keep on sinning. He'll convince you that it's not that big a deal. He even likes to change the words on it. That's how deceptive Satan is, how he changes words. That's why I love, I'm amazed at just the tactics of the evil one. Instead of calling it a strip club, he calls it a gentleman's club. Let me tell you, there ain't no gentleman going there. Seriously. He uses language. He tries to make it sound good. We don't talk about sinning anymore. We talk about struggling. It's a sin. We got to be able to call things what they are. It's not just an emotional connection. It's an affair. It's not just browsing pornography. That's adultery in the sight of God. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. Not try to play it off, try to make it sound better than it is, make ourselves feel better. 
We're experts at that. Not only is the devil good at deceiving us, we're good at deceiving ourselves. Sometimes we don't need any help. We have to understand that he is trying to destroy us, and he will do anything to do it. He will try to steal your conviction. He will lure you into an affair. He will incite you to evil. He will misinterpret the word. He will promise you the world. And he will do anything to keep you in bondage to sin. And he will do it any way possible. He will attack the family, the very basic and biological differences of a people. For crying out loud, we have a, we have a conversation now on what race you identify with or what gender you identify with. What world am I living in? Because the devil wants us to be confused. He wants us to distort. And he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy the family. Because the family is a great representation and picture of God, according to Ephesians 3.5. He tries to make things look progressive by what is popular and celebrated now. But it will be judged and punished later. There's no escaping it. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. Don't be mistaken. We are only seeing in the media now the supposed good, but the devil doesn't want you to see the bad. He wants to trap and destroy you. His most basic tactic, of course, is now is overt evil. That's what we think, but it's not. It's actually the little pleasures. Even a hint of religion will suffice in his mind, provided it isn't the relationship that God desires. He will do anything to make you feel good. He will use every any and every trick, tactic, scheme, subterfuge, and sabotage available to him. And be assured of this, he doesn't play fair. Now, we talked about who he is and how he operates, but I want to take a moment and focus on the devil's parameters. Let's focus on the devil's parameters. We need to understand what he can and cannot do. There are certain things that the devil cannot do, and we need to understand about him. First of all, he is restricted by God. Job chapter 1 and 2 shows this. He has to go and ask God for permission to do different things. Now, why God allows permission, that is something in the mind and counsel of God that we do not know and are not privy to. But we know that even the devil, as Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer said, is, the God, is God's devil. And he likened him to a dog on a leash. That he can't go any beyond what God will allow him to. That he is not omniscient, he, meaning he doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time. He's not omnipotent. He does not have all power. He has a limited power in this world. So we have to understand that. That he can only do what God will allow him to do. That he has restricted by God. Next, and this is a common misconception, he does not rule hell. He doesn't rule hell. He is not in charge of hell. I don't know where we get this notion, perhaps from medieval literature, but he doesn't rule hell. Hell was created for him to live in. It is his prison where he will be. He's not in charge of it. He is going to be living and dwelling in it. It's created for him. He does not rule hell. Thirdly, he cannot read your mind. He can't read your mind. The devil can't read your thoughts. Now, how does he know so much? He's been around a long time. He knows your habits. He's a little bit like Google. Okay? And what I mean by that is this. Google knows everything about you. Think about it. Google or just the internet or your phone company, pick any one of them. Through just that, they can see who you call, where you go, what you like, what you value, how you spend your money, where you shop. I mean, he's learning characteristics about, I mean, they know a lot about you already. That's why you have, you ever had been on your computer and you have suggestions you come up and you go, how did they know that? 
Because your preferences. Satan's been around a long time. He knows you. It's just like, like a lot of these grocery stores and Target. Target knows you, ladies. It is designed with you in mind. It knows how long you will spend in each different part. You say, no, it doesn't. Oh, yes, it does. They know what smells, what colors, all of the things that you like and don't like. They put things strategically so that you go to that place and you have to pass through other things. Same with grocery stores. We've talked about this before. What is something that you need all the time if you're a parent? Milk. Where is the milk? It's the very back of the store. Why is it the very back of the store? So you walk through the rest of the entire store. And what do they put right by the checkout register if you have children? It's made by the devil. But this is what he does. Also, though, notice with a lot of that candy, by the way, you do have these magazine covers. It's not, it's not an accident. It's strategic. Strategic. It's, it's people know, and the devil knows us. He's been around a long time. He knows our tendencies. He knows our habits. And he knows how to tempt us. So, but he can't read your mind. He just knows you really well after examining us over a long time. Now, how do we respond to this? How do we find victory over the devil? Well, first of all, we must rely on God's provision. He's not left us destitute. We can't try to fight in our own power. We have to realize what God has given to us. And if you have trusted in Christ, then the scripture says that he has set you free. Set you free. Now, the devil might try to intimidate you and try to bring you back and make you think that you're not free, but you are free. And you have to remind them of that. That the, de- that, the, that the devil will try to deceive you, but God has given his spirit to live within you, as 1 John 4.4 4 says. 1 John 4.4 4 says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, if we're going to take part and hold on to this provision that God has given us, we have to remember who is in us. God is in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is working to conform you to the image of his son. That spirit is not a spirit of, of, it's not a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-control. That you can resist sin now. You don't have to be chained to it. You don't have to go to that website. You don't have to spend that money. You don't have to take that drink. You don't have to take that drug. You don't have to say yes to that relationship. That you can say no. You have to remember that when the devil comes to you. I'm not the person I was. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creature. That old one is gone. He's not coming back. That he's the one that's living in me, transforming me to look like Jesus. That's what we have to remember and hold on to. That truth that he has given us his spirit. Secondly, he's given us strategies and tools in his word to resist his attacks. Resist his attacks. How do we do that? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 9. Page 1017, if you want to turn there. Peter writes by the spirit, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When he says that we're to resist him, we're to set ourselves against it. We're to stand in the full armor of God, and we're going to oppose him. We can say no to the devil's attack. We don't have to give in. We don't try to be friendly, but we then draw near to God. As James chapter 4, verse 7 says, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He, resist him, and he will flee. It's a promise. It's a little bit like this. And I like how Billy Sunday said this. I want to show you this quote by Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a great evangelist at the turn of the 20th century out of uh, Chicago, uh, if I remember correctly. And he said this, Temptation is the devil looking through the keyhole. I like that. Yielding is opening the door and inviting him in. It's almost as if he's looking through the keyhole, whispering, just let me in. Just come on, let me play. It'll be okay, it'll be fun. See, that's temptation. But if you resist him, if you don't open that door, he's going to go away. Now, remember, we're talking about the devil, but the reality is, is, is most of the time we're dealing with the demons. Really, the devil is not after you. He's trying to figure out how to get to Billy Graham. He's got demons after you who are fallen angels themselves, and they are diabolical. And we're not spending today focused on that, but we need to understand that demons are operating within the world. Now, how do we respond to all this? We stand firm. We resist his attacks, yes, but how? We must respond with God's word. We respond with God's word. One of the greatest interactions Jesus has is when he's interacting with the devil. And, and this interaction is fantastic because the devil says to him, he, the devil quotes him scripture. Now, when he says, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, cast yourself off because uh, God will command his angels concerning you that they will not let your fit, feet hit a rock. Now, could Jesus have done that? Yeah, he could have. He had that power to do that. And the man could walk on water. He could do that. But see, that's the one thing that we couldn't have done. So in order to identify with us, he did the one thing that we could do, not what we couldn't do. And what was the one thing we could do? Quote scripture. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Don't put that Bible away. You know what you need to do and get up in the morning? And I posted some articles on Facebook this past week that I saw from Desiring God. Don't look at your smartphone when you wake up in the morning. Read the word. Because Satan will distract you right away. That's what I found. I found myself in a funk last several weeks a bit of depression, I realized that I was opening my phone before I was the Word of God. And I noticed that when I put away my phone and I didn't go check Facebook every 31 minutes, as it says, that most people do, not looking at line, not looking at news, not looking at what other people are posting, that I just focused on God, my perspective changed. Anxiety went away. Peace. Satan will do anything to bring you down. He will use work. He will even use relationships, family, to keep you from seeing him. We have to respond with God's word. Quote scripture, it is powerful, so powerful that the devil can't stand in the face of it. Just like that story I mentioned at the beginning, the, the devil can't go. What's the one thing that he can't, that can't cross? That staff of truth. It's the truth, the truth of who God is. He can't stand against it. We have to hold on to the word. I'm not sure if you know Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But I want to close with this. See, it's, if, a lot of times you've been in church before, hopefully, and you've heard a song, and sometimes it's an old hymn, and instead of singing all four verses, you sing verse 1 and verse 4, or just sing verse 1. You can't do that with A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know why? Because at the end of verse 1, Satan is victorious. He's the victor after verse 1. That's why you have to get verse 2 and then verse 3. Verse 2, Jesus is introduced. And in verse 3, we get a picture of what is to come for our enemy. And it says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. Satan's doom is sure. Verse 4 goes on to say that God's kingdom is forever. The only reason that we can have victory over the devil is because of Jesus. Because Jesus triumphed over the devil on the cross. What the devil thought was his greatest victory ended up being his greatest defeat. And we see him now. He's raging against the world because he knows that his time is short, that he's going he's gonna to be out. He's, he's desperation. He's in complete desperation because he knows that his doom is sure. It's just like we talked about last week, and I'm going to close with this. We have a storm. We've been having storms a lot lately, right? You, ever, you hear lightning, and then you, hear the, you see the lightning. You don't hear lightning. I went to Bible college. You see lightning, then you hear the thunder. The lightning happened on the cross. The thunder's coming at the consummation. We haven't seen it completed yet, but that thunder's coming where he will rule. Now, if you are here today and you are a person who has not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ, then the scripture says that you have been blinded by the enemy, that you are not in truth, that you are in falsehood. You might be worshiping yourself, might be worshiping an ideal. You might think you're fine and free and dandy, and if that's the case, you're more lost than I thought because you're under the influence of the evil one. It's not about what professors say, what philosophy says, what the media says. It's what God's word says. Because I guarantee God's word will prove true. It has time and time again. No matter what cultural thing came about, it always has to bow and come back to bow at the authority of God's word. Don't be married to the spirit of the age. Because if you are, you will be a widow in the age to come as it has been said. But Christ has made himself available and he offers his gift of salvation unto you for all of those who repent and believe that he will take that veil away and you will see the light and life of Christ that knowing that he died for your sins and mine and that he came to give us life, life to the full. And it's available to all of, all of you who come and by faith and turning from their, their, their works and in their unrighteous deeds, embrace him and he will save you. He will transform you and save you from God's wrath, which is coming. And he will give you life and peace and joy and in the knowledge of him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice in who you are and what it is that you have done, Lord. We know that the enemy is a roaring lion. But yet, Lord, we know that he's on a leash, that he can't do anything without your allowance. And Lord, you have given us power through your word and as your spirit is working within us to resist the enemy. Lord, there are so many verses that talk about the truth of who you are and how we have victory over him. Lord, help us to live in the truth of your word and the reality of your resurrection, knowing that your spirit has enabled us to live and fight victoriously. Lord, let not the enemy keep us captive. Let let us not believe his lies. Let us see them for what they are and live in the truth that your word proclaims. May that be appropriated unto our lives. Lord, give each one of us victory. And for those that are experienced bondage right now, they feel themselves slaves to sin and bondage to their sin. They feel trapped. Lord, it could be a demonic thing. It could be their flesh. It could just be that they're caught in the trappings of the world. Lord, I pray that you show them that you are the God who sets the captive free. 
that they can see the one true Son of God who came, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's through that truth that we might be set free. Lord, please glorify your name, set the captives free. Glorify your name in this church. Give us unity and give us victory over the enemy as we go forth in our homes, in our schools, at our workplaces, wherever it might be. May we live victorious lives for the glory, honor, and praise of your holy and awesome name until the world may know that you are the one true Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.